Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. This is the episode that some of you have been waiting 40-some episodes for. Many of you know that I identify as a universalist, meaning that I believe that everyone will be saved in the end, whatever we might mean by the word saved, and that is often up for debate. There are a lot of reasons that people believe in hell, and there are a lot of reasons that people don't believe in hell. Many of those reasons, maybe even most of those reasons, I would argue have nothing or little to do with actual arguments or theological reasoning or even a close reading of the biblical text. Most reasons, I think, are psychological and mostly not even uh, in our conscious awareness, basically. Why people actually believe in hell at a more psychological level is a very interesting question, but it is not the question that we are spending much time on today, although we do spend a few minutes on it. This episode is about the arguments themselves, about the readings of the texts, and all of that good stuff. 
The most central question is, does hell make sense given the God of Christianity? And the next most central question, how do we make sense of various sayings of Jesus that seem to teach a painful final judgment? My guest today is Brad Jersak. Brad is a Canadian theologian, author, and pastor, and his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, is widely considered one of the best treatments of this question of universal salvation. Our first 15 minutes or so are spent kind of getting our bearings with the current landscape on this topic, including some explaining of terms and introducing David Bentley Hart's new book as a centerpiece of both our conversation and the wider theological conversation. If you want to go straight into the arguments, you could skip ahead to about the 17 or 18 minute mark. All right, let's get into it. Brad, so grateful to have you here today talking with me. I have been aware of you and your work for a long, long time now. Not as aware as I'd like to be, as I'll explain in a minute, but really happy to finally be talking with you. And just thanks for the work you've been doing over the last couple of decades. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you and finally meet you as well. So I do want to kind of set this up like a little bit about who you are. There's also another theologian whose presence will loom in the room with us that we're going to be talking about. And then I want to get a little bit of background of your own faith journey. But let's start with just saying you have a book that a lot of people uh, have said to me over the years is the best book on you – know, they're saying universalism. Um, we're going to get into some of the technical differences between some of these terms, but basically the idea that like, yeah, pretty much God's going to save everybody. If we could just sort of say it in some layman's terms, your book is called Her Gates Shall Never Be Shut. I meant to read it a long time ago. I read this other book instead, If Grace is True, by a couple of Quaker guys making a similar argument, and I just never got around to it. But it's still the one that, like, I, I've even recommended it to other people, having not read it, because I trust so well what other people have said about how good it is. And when did that book come out? That came out in 2009, which means one year before Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Right. And the reason why it became popular is because I didn't come into it with a position. And mm. so people have found it helpful in that I say, look, at I'm – I'm not arguing for a point of view here. I'm saying before we argue for a point of view, we better get our data straight. And so I look at the competing images within the scriptures themselves around final judgment and afterlife outcomes. And I go through every scripture in the Bible that I could find, not only the talk about, let's say, hell, but the talk about judgment, the talk about the afterlife. And I tried to do inductive study on it and just say, here in, in these passages, here's the criteria. In these passages, here's the criteria. And what do you know? They don't harmonize. And maybe our inability to harmonize these competing visions should humble us a little bit so that we don't race to dogma. My experience is that most of the other books on the market will start with a position and then argue it from Scripture, which requires them to ignore problem texts or to sort of push back and explain those texts. And I'm like, let's just not explain things too quickly. Undergo the text first and then see how both in the Bible and in history we have a range of views that prefer certain sets. Could we do that without marginalizing the messy stuff? And so that's, I think, why people found it helpful my tone was not polemical. It was more like wonder and, oh my goodness, what do we do with this? Yeah. 
And am I remembering correctly, you were featured in that documentary, Hellbound? Is that That's right? correct. That movie was inspired by my book because Kevin Miller, who created the movie, had edited my book and said, oh, my goodness, we need, we need to do a documentary on this. And he got he wanted to show this full range of views as well. And that's sort of where we came from. I'll find a link to how to stream that movie in the show notes. It's called Hellbound? That film and, and this argument of yours that basically there are three sets of texts that seem to teach three different things and they are not harmonizable on the surface or maybe at all, was really helpful for me uh, as a way to kind of think about this. And it's something that when I've been interviewed about this topic elsewhere, I always start with. I say, look, there are verses that do each of these three things, eternal conscious torment, annihilation, and universal salvation. And basically, we're not going to solve this simply by reiterating those texts and what they seem to say. We have to bring something else in. And then also... This is why I've said before, I'm a universalist, but I can't prove it from Scripture. Because you can't prove it from Scripture. Yeah, I mean, you can make a very, very strong case. I think I think Robin Perry does. But the early church was wise in this, and they said, you can hold it as a conviction. You cannot teach it as doctrine. Yeah. Because they wanted us to only teach things as, as doctrine that were required in your faith statement. So you'll notice in the in the Apostles' Creed in the Latin West, when they would go to get baptized, they'd affirm this creed. It mentions nothing about hell except that Christ went there and conquered it. Right. And in the Nicene Creed, it mentions nothing about it except that there will be a, a, a judgment, there'll be a resurrection, and eternal life. Nothing about the fate of the of the damned, so-called. And that's on purpose, I think, it's, it's to say, if, if we can't make a, an absolute statement about it, then don't. Right? So... And then from there, you're welcome to discuss it and debate it and fantasize about it and all of that, but just to realize it's doctrinal opinion. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pretty interested in the way that you and also the Catholic theologian Hans von Balthasar, I would say you make the strongest possible case for universal salvation within that framework of this can't be doctrine, but here's the argument. We do need to mention the man who's in the room with us but not here today, and that's David Bentley Hart. Yeah, you've got your copy uh, of his book, That All Shall Be Saved. He's been writing, though, and and sort of teaching on universal reconciliation, universal salvation for a long time now. But he finally sort of put it into one book and published it. I decided not to interview him, uh, and I'm not going to go into all of why I didn't, but I, I realized quite quickly that I would rather be talking with you. And so I'm talking with you instead of him, but you're familiar with his work and the arguments and what we're basically, I would say, the argument you're presenting today is sort of a combination of the two of your thought, uh, and you'll make some distinctions between what he says and what you say. But we should just mention that we're going to mention Hart. We're going to mention him and reference some stuff that he said, and and it's the impetus for our conversation is that that came out and people are talking about it. Yada yada. Yeah, that's fair. And I would say that um, his book, that all shall be saved. It's a it's a must have. And that I don't believe that future debates or discussions about heaven, hell, or universal salvation should take place without reference to that book. It needs to be part at the table uh, from now on, in my opinion. Before we move on, let's just understand where you and von Balthasar, as I understand it, agree and slightly differ with David Bentley Hart. Can you explain that so that we we, we know that in the back of our mind, and then we can just get to the task of arguing with the other two positions. 
Sure. So I'll start with Hart. My understanding of his position is that it's patristic universalism. In other words, there is a stream of universalism in the early church, represented best probably by Gregory of Nyssa, that boldly proclaimed that all will ultimately be saved. Patristic universalism, as Gregory would have taught it, or as Hart now teaches us, includes all of the essentials of the gospel, the problem of sin and the human condition, the need for a redeemer, the necessity of the cross and resurrection, a forthcoming judgment, and a willing faith response. I believe those are all essential to the gospel, and I believe that Hart includes all of those. And so I actually found his arguments for his position completely convincing. I also object to the use of the term universalism these days because increasingly that's become an enormous umbrella term that does not hold to those essentials of the gospel. So where I've been bumped to in part by heart is to make a a bolder statement. I believe in ultimate reconciliation or ultimate redemption, and I think that is what he teaches and that that's a better term for it. My issue is with the term universalism itself because it's become a fairly bland kind of pluralism without reference to sin or Christ, the cross, resurrection, judgment, or a willing response. So so the issues around the terminology at that point, not with Hart's own arguments. As far as I can tell, I embrace all his arguments for ultimate reconciliation. Yeah, I think that I... I definitely am not nearly as clear as you are on what is required for salvation from a human being, but I've tried to be really careful in publicly speaking about this, that my arguments for universal reconciliation within the Christian tradition are not about that, that I have a a separate question, a personal sort of intuitional study-related thing. I'm having a hard time understanding how atonement is really needed given cosmic history and evolution and the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe, that's bracketed off from if we take Christian theology at face value, it's totally immoral to torture people forever. Uh, And annihilation, I think, is far more – we're going to get into the options here in a second, but annihilation is far more moral on God's part but just does not seem to be reflected in the character of God as shown in Jesus. It would be better news, but not very good news. Yeah, it's, it'd be and maybe better. we could maybe we could mention Balthasar now. Yeah, I I would align with the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar, but Hart and I disagree about what that is. And so I have I think I coined the phrase hopeful inclusivism to describe both Hans Urs von Balthasar's position and also Metropolitan Callistus Ware his position. And at least with where he's still alive, and I could propose that to him. And he said, A, he likes that term, and B, as far as he's aware, he and von Balthasar were on the same page. Yeah, where is a cosmopolitan of the Eastern Orthodox Church? He's in England. That's like a bishop, right, in Orthodox? Met- Metropolitan would Metropolitan. be like— Metropolitan. Oops. Um, Not cosmopolitan. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a title. Um, and so he's kind of a big way. He's the metropolitan for all of the UK right? and a lovely man. Now, I, I don't know, maybe Hart has actually pushed me to be bolder than they would be. But my problem with his with the book was that he was treating this idea of hopeful 
as either wishful thinking, vacillating, a kind of double-mindedness, or even doubt. And what I didn't like about that is that I don't believe that's what Balthazar was doing. He would regard Jesus Christ as our hope, and that's an objective hope. It's not a psychological half-heartedness at all. And in fact, Balthazar says in his book, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, he says we're actually obligated to hope, and that because it is infinitely unlikely that someone would resist the love of God forever, and that this idea of hope, Hart himself translates his New Testament to include the hope of Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, and this glory. And so even Hart knows there's such thing as objective hope, where the hope is the person that you trust in. And that's what Balthazar is doing. So I'm like, so, so dude, you're being, you're not, you're not representing them perfectly. Okay, so I, yeah. that, that's one issue I had with the book. But really, to me, it's, okay, we disagree on what Balthazar meant. So what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and when you're saying hopeful inclusivism, some people use the term hopeful universalism. That's yeah. the idea of like, well, I sure hope everybody's going to be saved. And I think everybody ought to hope, but it's a softer hope. It's like, a, I really would prefer that. And it seems righteous to me, but ultimately it's up to God. And I have no idea. You're using it like, look, as far as we can tell, our hope is in what Jesus came and did. And that is, you know, infinitely unlikely that this doesn't happen, but we can't say for sure. Yeah. And so what I was trying to say is that that is the position of hopeful universalism. Mm -hmm. It's not like, well, I hope so. Right now. So my conclusion after reading Hart's book is like, if he can't understand what we mean by that, then if I'm going to tell him he should use a different word than universalism, then I need to be judged by the same measure and say, okay, I, maybe I need to drop hopeful inclusivism or hopeful universalism because it's, mis- it's misunderstood as well. And maybe a lot of people are just using it for hedge betting. And that's why I'm shifting now after 10 years from, from describing my position, which hasn't changed from hopeful inclusivism to ultimate redemption, but not as a dogma, as a faith statement. Right. Okay, so let's get into just a real basic background of here are the positions. There's essentially eternal conscious torment. There is annihilationism, also known as conditional immortality, which means you only get immortality if you're saved, and if you don't, then you cease to exist. And then there is universal reconciliation. And and for now, we're just going to lump all the stuff we've talked about, we're going to put it in the same category because the differences are, are quite small compared to these other two uh, positions. So anything we need to say about those three options? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that that they do have a lot of subcategories, right? Sure. So even, let's say, eternal conscious torment, some would say it's in a literal place with actual flames and you burn forever and ever. Others, even like John Calvin would say, no, it's a state of being, it's a state of mind, but it is a torment and it's forever. And, and it's a spiritual kind of thing, not a, I think it was R.C. Sproul said you're going to have a skin suit so you could perpetually have nerve endings that feel this. And a lot of the ECT people, infernalists, that's what I love I think. the term infernalists, which I hadn't read until Hart's book. And I just cracked a giant smile. Yeah, I used it in my book 10 years ago, but I and I can't find out where I got it. But I think it came from von Balthasar. OK, so fantastic um, terminology. Yeah. So we'll use that from now. So the yeah. inf- there's a range of infernalists, and like we've already talked about, there is a range of universalists. And then even this idea of the conditionalists, there's a few types of them. So some would say, when you die, you're just dead. 
And others would say, no, you need to be raised to life and then thrown in the fire and burned up because you have to face a judgment as well. And so you have a range among those. And, and they like those passages where it talks about us being consumed or destroyed or perishing. And, and those are strong passages. They make a good case from those texts. Right. It's just how to, how to, what do they do with the others? So here's how the next uh, 20 minutes or so of our chat's going to go. I've got two big problems that we're going to discuss. Mostly we're talking about the infernalists here. The idea of any kind of hell that is continual, ongoing in some meaningful sense for people. And then I'll ask you about any other additional problems that you see. And at that time, we will also get into why universalism over annihilationism, basically. So we're going to start with hell because that is clearly the dominant view. And here's the first big problem that I, as I understand it from, from Hart's work and I believe your own, if, if we are damned, if I end up being damned, then in some sense, I have truly chosen to be damned. And how could this possibly be a rational choice? This is sort of the first naughty issue. What do you want to say about that? I would say that. I want to present the infernalist position as fairly as I can, right? And so just so that we're not straw manning them, if I were in their shoes, I would say it this way. It's not that we're choosing to be damned. It is that we have chosen as a race to unplug from life and that in that turning, we have chosen self-will and we may not know that self-will leads to damnation or we may know that self-will leads to damnation. So we wouldn't consciously choose damnation, but we certainly have consciously chosen the conditions that lead to damnation. And that is by saying no to, let's say, the tree of life, which is now, I would I envision that as the cross. And so it's like, well, you can do that. The question then is, how rational is that choice? It's like, is willfulness rational? I, um, and so oh, Max- great the, question. Yeah. Yeah. So willfulness is rooted in a dysfunction of the will. And so you have a range on what the, how, how willing we are. So Kelvin, for example, Augustine, Luther, they would talk about a bondage of the will. So, so you are bound to damnation. You're bound to reprobation. You are bound to, in my mind, that would be completely unjust for God to condemn you to eternal conscious torment for that which you could not choose otherwise. Yeah, this is why the word rational comes in, right? This is why we're asking, is willfulness rationality? Because if you didn't choose it, if it's just a state that is handed down to you by default, then you are certainly not culpable for it in any general sense of the word culpability or responsibility, right? Like in in no legal system on earth would we ever convict someone for something that literally their dad put in their hands, you know, like if your da- if a dad puts a gun in his son's hand and lifts him up to the gas station clerk and says, "Hey, say to him, this is a stick up." No one's going to convict the kid of that. That's obviously the dad forcing his kid to take part in a robbery. And so that that's why we're trying to get this. You have to, in some sense, be choosing it. In some sense, yeah. And so this is where Hart and von Balthasar and I all claim. St. Maximus the Confessor is a real patron saint on the will. He is the expert in all of church history on this. And what he would say is this. 
when humankind was created, we were given a natural will. And the natural state of the created will is to always turn towards the good. And that's why when our natural will is restored, there won't be another fall in the next at the end of the ages. The mystery of iniquity is that somehow in in the fall narrative, Adam turns from God and actually his his will becomes dysfunctional. And Maximus called that the gnomic will, G-N-O-M-I-C. It's like like garden gnome, you know, um, and that is, it's not an absolute bondage of the will, but it's a kind of vacillating. Will I turn to the good or will I turn from the good? And maybe I'll turn from the good and maybe, and, and inevitably you fall. Now, even then Maximus would say it would be unjust for God to torment you forever and ever and condemn you for making choices in this life with a broken dysfunctional will. But thanks be to God in the garden of Gethsemane, when Christ hands his will over to the Father, he vicariously heals the human will so that at the final judgment, when we see Christ face to face, our natural will will be restored. You will still have to activate it. In other words, it's a willing yes, but you will make your willing yes because your natural will will be healed and you can begin to experience that healing even in this life if you turn to Christ. But Paul's pretty adamant that 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see. And so it's something about preaching the gospel pulls the blinder off and your will is reactivated to say your yes. Will some need to do that in the next life? Maximus thought so. Now, von Balthasar would say Maximus is his guy. And, it's, <laughs> and so this is why it's hopeful. We put our trust that God will heal us in that way and then we'll respond. But... um. Hart just claims as a, him as a universalist, and Maximus wasn't that vocal about it. But I, th- I think he's kind of right there. It's like he expects all shall be saved through the healing of the human will that will willingly respond. In my own theology, I don't have a big spot for the fall because I just don't know when it would have happened, or I, I can't really think of a fall. I can think of us sort of emerging into our humanity, which always includes the capacity to do wrongly. Human beings compared to dogs, we have a vastly larger capacity to do good and a vastly larger capacity to do evil. So I don't think of it that way, but the point here is the same even for me, which is that, you know, I'm, I'm studying, uh, I'm in grad school to become a psychologist right now. And just the more you learn about the ways in which human choice and human will are constrained, it's constrained by our brain chemistry, by uh, the genetics that are parents hand down to us. It's constrained by the way they treat us when we're in our formative years. Did did we have good or bad attachment to our primary caregiver? Do we have mental disorders caused by chemical or trauma, you know, in our past? You know, all this stuff. Like everybody just has a litany of causes and forces that are acting on them. Do we still have will? Yeah, we do. And we can yep. choose the good and we can choose the bad. But C.S. Lewis was really good about this in saying the, the part of us that chooses is this tiny little part at our center, and no one has access to that, which is why we shouldn't judge, because we don't know what people have actually been through. That's easy to understand why we shouldn't judge people, but it, it applies big time in this conversation. If that's true, if we just have a little part that chooses this way or chooses that way, and we just do what we can with what we're given, then we have to say – if we want to say that people deserve hell, that that little bit of them that can kind of go this way and kind of go that way based on all these other things they didn't choose, that that bit could 
rationally choose not God. And I just don't see how that's the case. Right. Let's even push it a little further and say, what if will isn't the primary thing going on here? And so in the New Testament, the the big issue around repentance was metanoia. It was a turning of the noose. And the noose with the organ of the soul, it's not just your mind or your will. It's the organ of the, the soul or the eyes of your heart that turn towards divine love. And so... So for Paul, think about this, on the road to Damascus in his conversion, did he choose anything? It's more like, no, he saw. He saw. The eyes of his heart came open. And so 2 Corinthians 4, I think, is his reflection of that. He's like, oh, my goodness, when I saw him, I got it. It's not so much even about choice then. It is, it's, it's, about, it's about a yes that comes out of a right seeing at, at the heart level, and that that seeing is even connected to loving. And then Revelation 1 says, and every eye shall see him. So my I thought is, when every eye shall see him, every eye, every heart will say, oh my goodness, I get it now. Without those constraints you were talking about, those have been removed at that point. Exactly, yes. And I would, I mean, I would argue, unless you are Calvinist, uh, in terms of the way that you must think about your salvation in terms of the structure you've been given and perhaps that you find quite convincing for any number of reasons is that God chose you before the foundations of the earth. Everybody, pretty much every Christian's experience of God, of Christ, is being overwhelmed by Christ in some way. You know, like these days for me, it is what occasionally happens in prayer practice or in meditation. Grace is a good word for it. I have no sense that I am earning this flood of joy from the God of the universe, right? And so it is kind of weird to go, well, every time that we're saved, it's by this complete act of grace. We see God shows God's self to us and we are overwhelmed with love and whatever, but uh, we actually choose hell or we choose salvation. It's like, well, we, that's not even our, that's not even our phenomenological experience of salvation. And so it is weird to say, well, the reason that other people don't experience salvation is that they didn't choose God. Well, I didn't choose God either. So you know what I mean? Or that God didn't choose them. So you do have, you do have a Calvinist universalists now who say, we're going to get elect are saved and everyone is elect. So there we're going to get to, (laughs) we're going to get to that at the end, because I think that's an interesting uh, workaround that I, I find plausible by itself. I just don't find other aspects of Calvinism plausible, but um, right. Okay, so the next big problem that I have flagged here, and Hart goes really hard on this, is a God who makes everlasting torture for any of God's creatures, just just any number of them. Is that God worthy of worship and, and love and adoration? What do you think about that question? Yeah, I think that I, I think that retribution. This is a, this is orthodox theology, by the way. There is no retribution in the nature of God, and yet you will have some orthodox who are infernalists, and even Gregory of Nyssa, and perhaps even David Bentley Hart could foresee a remedial judgment that leads to ultimate redemption that could even last ages upon ages. Why would that be? especially if there's no retribution in the nature of God. And the way they would answer that is this, that, and Macrina the Younger does this when she's teaching Gregory of Nyssa her universalist position, and that is that the torment is not from God at all, except to say that the love of God is drawing you into the kingdom of heaven. The torment then is either the accusing voice of your conscience 
when it shows you the great tragedy of rejecting perfect love when it was revealed to you. Or it could be the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth when your conscience opens the book of your life and shows you you wasted the whole damn thing. Or the torment could be exactly, I mean like precisely the degree to which we cling to our attachments in this world. And that could either be self-righteousness or shame and all the things that come after that. So in other words, even among the universalists, some foresee a, a longer kind of torment where God is not the agent of the torment, except that he's love drawing you through the into his kingdom. And the stuff we hang on to can't come with us. So that's a lot different than saying God is this divine torturer. Who's, and then they would say this, that the universalists of that kind, including Hart, would say, you know, if there is, the, the fire is the fire of the glory of the love of Christ. And that that fire feels like heaven to those who love love, and it feels like hell to those who resist love. My issue with the Orthodox infernalists is they think that could become a permanent state. And I'm like, do we not think these flames have the power to melt gold? Yeah. In the process of removing the wood, hay, and stubble, or in the process of removing the dross, has Scripture not actually said that the fire is able to consume those things? And so it's an effective fire. Love is an effective fire that brings about softening of the heart. How long will that take? Actually, is long even an appropriate word for the afterlife? Maybe that's just not a thing, right? Yeah, so I was just going to say that that leads into what I was thinking, which is, I'm agnostic on that question of what, how exactly does this work? Do we need to be uh, sort of punished in some way, or do we do our wills need to be bent in some way towards God's after we die on this earth? The reason that I'm agnostic on it is I think that what we're talking about when we use analogies from this life. So C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, his big metaphor about the afterlife, he has people in hell. Basically, they live in these like compounds of their own making in this dark place. And they, as time goes on, they become ever more separated from their neighbors and, and they're, they're sort of turning inward to their own sadness. And, you know, I think that it's useful to think of that as a metaphor. What I would say is what we're really talking about with metaphors like this is we're talking about neuroplasticity, basically. In our brains, you have like, you can change neural pathways, but the more often you choose the same thing, the deeper those pathways get. So in Lewis's view, the pathway, you're you're sort of locked in place when you die, and your neural pathways will just get more and more and more sinful or whatever like that. The way that we're talking about it, if we talk about how long will it take for the love of God, the fire of Christ to renew us, we're talking about building new neural pathways. Now, the problem with that is I can't imagine whatever kind of form of neural pathways I have in the life to come. So I don't think that that's actually probably a good way of thinking about it because neural pathways only exist in this universe where everything is a competition for resources. And one thing we know about the next life, whatever it looks like, it's not a competition of resources. It's not about the lion and the lamb aren't competing for the sun's energy through plants or each other's flesh or whatever. So that's why I would say agnostic on it. But as a sort of theological metaphor, the idea that God's love, which if you're a Christian, you have experienced in some way, the idea that that's not enough to turn someone over time to God, I think is like, is a, frankly a weird thing to think. It's a very, very small view 
of God, and it does not regard his love as omnipotent or infinite in any way. Uh, Yeah, so that would be a real and a philosophical problem then, too. It's too, it's too, Chris Green is awesome on this. He says that would, that flame wouldn't be hot enough then to measure up to what we would call infinite love. The the flames of infinite love, if they're unable to do that kind of work, then we've imagined them. But like you say, we need to be somewhat agnostic about this because we're above our pay grade. It's another, it's a whole nother thing, but it's okay to have doctrinal opinions about it. What's not okay is to present God's character as an, in monstrous ways, yes. blasphemous ways. Amen. Right? Amen. Yeah. And also to be clear, you know, I, I don't mean to shut anything down with my neuroplasticity thing. It's just like, I think that's appropriate theological humility that, yeah, this is of a different kind. And if we're if we are unknowingly basing our metaphors during this life on some scientific stuff about our own physical organ of our brains and we can identify that, well, then we shouldn't base it on that for whatever comes next. Because even if we have some sort of glorified body, whatever that is, we should not pretend that we know what that looks like or how it functions. At the same time, we should have a theological system that is internally logically consistent One thing we can know for sure without knowing anything about what the afterlife looks like is if we affirm X and not X in our theological system, then we're not right. That much we can say just logically, right? Yeah. I guess I want to be humble with metaphors, and I also want to say that's all we got. Right, it's true. So so we must speak in metaphors, but we can't dogmatize metaphors. Um, And even, like, I love... Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, but we always have to look at these kind of uh, models for their limitations. So the limitation in his model is where's Christ in it? You know, it's kind of you're up to your own resources and the people that are helping you along and the dragons that are holding you back and the angels that are moving you forward. It's like so he's done a whole a whole envisioning of this that I found helpful because it allows for choice in, in the afterlife but it was unhelpful or limited in the sense that how about the parable of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go out to the one until he finds them. So if we're going to use metaphors, actually it might help to start with the ones Christ provided too, right? Yeah, the actual, the parables. So I'm putting this episode together late on Sunday night after being away this weekend. So I haven't had time to put together the trailer for the patron-only exclusive episode. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. I spoke this week with Evan Rosa. Evan used to run the basically the kind of media and thought arm of Biola University. It was called CCT, Center for Christian Thinking or Thought or something like that. Now he's at Yale working with Miroslav Volf, a very well-regarded theologian and we got into it on a bunch of issues like his story coming out of evangelicalism we talked about a little bit of shop a little audio stuff a little bit about podcasting and writing uh, good interview questions it was just an awesome conversation i really enjoyed it it came out great that will be up in the next day or two for patrons only and if you want to become a patron it starts at five dollars a month it's a great way to support this show financially to help me pay for grad school uh, and It also gives you access to the Facebook group, which is becoming really, I think, a bigger and bigger part of supporters of this show's lives and a bigger part of my life as people get more involved on there. That's becoming a very cool community. People just throwing out stuff that they're working through in real time 
and getting comments within 30 minutes or an hour often uh, from a bunch of different perspectives. So to become a patron, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. There are also scholarships available if you really can't swing five bucks a month right now. If that's the case, email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, back to the episode with Brad. So, okay, this is problem 2A. So problem 2 was, would a god who creates unlimited torture for any of God's creatures be worthy of worship? Um, this is a, a really a sub-problem there. Now, this is one that I... I wish I knew the provenance on. I've been making this argument for 10 or 15 years, but I don't remember if I maybe read like a David Bentley Hart blog post (laughs) in college or something. So I don't know where it came from. But here's the argument that he makes that I love and have been making for a long time. If this is true of God, that God does this, that God creates a bunch of creatures and some of them are tortured forever consciously, then the claims that God is loving and just— in the Bible, are meaningless. They are they are meaningless based on human language. And if that's the case, then we have no reason to believe that the Bible tells us anything true about God, and we may as well throw the Bible out altogether and just go with our experience of something spiritual, right? So there's no meaning of the word just that includes eternal punishment for finite crimes and it doesn't really seem like there's meaning of a an all-powerful or almighty being that is love or loving that would do this. That that just seems to be that's not love. So so those things mean the opposite of what we think they mean and therefore we have no language to talk about God. Did I get the argument right? I think you did get the argument right and I would I believe that that would be an irrefutable argument if you believe as I do the nature of God is goodness and love. The workaround that I find to be really descriptive of a whole different God, and they would say, I think Calvin said this in his his commentary on First John, when it says God is love, Calvin would say God is not love in his nature. That's a phenomenological description of God. Uh, to the elect, God is love, and to the damned, God is hate. I'm like, well, okay, if you think that, but now we're just simply talking about a different God. And I guess the discussion's over then, but if words mean anything, that God would not be good. And that maybe there you could still have an argument with Kelvin on what, what is good. But for him, good is whatever the hell God says is good. And that's, a, that's kind of a radical voluntarism that, that yeah. heart just dismantles beautifully. Well, uh, even if that's true, I think that maybe that's a way out of God is love, but it's still not a way out of God is just because, okay, fine. So God is not loving the way we might think that God is loving and, and maybe God's only kind to the people that God wants to be kind to. Fine. Maybe the reprobate have done nothing. Like maybe, let, let's take this thought experiment. Human beings genuinely deserve punishment and death, and we don't deserve any of God's love at all. But it's still a different argument to say we deserve eternal conscious hell. That is not clear. You could say, I get this from the Bible. Okay, fine. First of all, there are other readings of the Bible. But even if you say that, no philosopher, no ethicist, no one has ever made a good argument that that is just. That's not just. That's just power. That is will to power. Yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm warning you that I'm about to push back, 
but I want to say, first of all, that I agree with you 100%. So I'll push back with the best argument they have, and I still think it's so bad as to be demonic. (laughs) But (laughs) here's here's how you would do that. God would not be just if he were simply punishing you for every sin you committed in this life that have with regard to other people. But he must punish you eternally because your offense is against an eternal God. You see what I mean? So that's how they make it, how they balance the scales, infinite punishment because of the infinite person that you've offended and rejected and in fact betrayed, you know? Yeah. I I mean, I get it. It's an, it's, it's, it comes from Anselm and my understanding of that argument is it's based on uh, jurisprudence in the Middle Ages, where yeah, if yeah. you steal a goat from another peasant, well, whatever. If you steal a goat from a king, well, that's death. It doesn't yeah. make any sense to us. The only people that that made sense to were basically medieval noble people who wrote the laws for 400 years or so. No one else has ever found that convincing. And so you're basically staking your claim on that feudal lords in the, in Europe we're right about justice and every constitution on earth today is wrong about justice. And probably we should not like you basically would have to say we should punish crimes based on the social and, and economic status of the victim. You'd have, you'd have to, if you wanted to be consistent, that's what you're saying. Justice is. Yeah. Well, and in fact, we do see that that happening and we call that injustice, right? Exactly. So if you're, if you're rich and you like bribe to get your kids into a, a university, then you go for a week of jail. But if you accidentally vote wrong, you go for three years. Why? Well, cause you're black and poor. Well, we, we yeah. know that that's wrong, right? Right. At least we know that. And to be fair to Anselm, even, even he didn't think the solution was punishment for him. The, the way of satisfying the offense and restoring the honor of God was through Christ's vicarious obedience, not through the wrath poured out like you get in Kelvin. So even he wouldn't go that far, you know? Yeah. And the other thing there too, with that argument is that you still have to motivate that a finite in time human being is capable in some sense of a quote, eternal offense, which I don't know how you explain that. Uh, I understand that an eternal God created a temporal universe that goes in time, but I don't understand the mechanism for how a temporal being offends that eternal being on the eternal plane of existence or something. It just doesn't make you, – you have to basically posit like a really strong soul-body dualism. You're going to need that because your body certainly can't do anything in the eternal. Maybe your soul can, but really strong dualisms are really problematic based on what we know about our bodies. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. It sounds to me more like, frankly, someone going, well, I think Trump's a Christian now because James Dobson said that he converted to Christ. (laughs) It's not a real argument. It's a thing you go to because you have other commitments, basically. Yeah. And what that raises the problem of what those commitments are. My goodness, like we're willing to throw the justice of God under the bus for what? You know, I I find that quite insidious. And so I remember back in the day when Jay Packer and Clark Pinnock were debating a bit about this because Clark Pinnock was the first sort of notable evangelical to come out as a in terms of conditional immortality. And and he got accused, I think, perhaps by Packer of you just want people not to go to hell forever. So your argument is rooted in sentimentalism. And then 
Pinnock rightly counter argued, it's like, my position may be rooted in love. What's yours rooted in? Like, what if, if I can be accused of sentimentalism for hoping that people won't be tortured for eternity, what's behind yours? And don't tell me it's just the Bible. It was, it was probably a theological system because Packer's a good guy, but for some, it's just absolutely a desire to see the punishment of your enemies. Yeah, so in a, in a bit, we've got a bunch of really good questions from listeners and from patrons of the show. Okay. A lot of those are about particular scripture passages. But before sure. we go to that, let's spend about 10 minutes, 5-10 minutes on the psychology of this. So okay. this is something I've become increasingly convinced of, mostly through considering politics and psychology, is that a lot of what people say is not what they actually believe, or it's not the, it's not the reasons that they believe it. So you ask someone why they believe something they are usually not aware of the real reasons that they believe it or they're committed to it or whatever. This is true of me. It's true of everybody. It's just like a human thing. And so there's the arguments for hell, but then there's the psychological phenomenon, right? And so if we agree that a lot of people's motivations are not conscious to them and they couldn't put them in argument form, like what's going on here psychologically that is motivating this very popular view of eternal hell? Yeah, maybe... Maybe it won't for long. <laughs> I, you know, oh, earlier, that's interesting. In the, yeah. earlier in the discussion, you said this is like infernalism is clearly the dominant, the dominant theology of the afterlife. I don't know if that will be true 10 years from now. I bet you that that's already not true with millennials and Gen Z. I bet it's not. Yeah. I bet, I bet you're right. In fact, when we showed, we showed Hellbound at Trinity Western University, which is a conservative evangelical university. To teach in their faculty, you have to sign off on eternal conscious torment. But when after we showed the movie, the people attending it, we did a, a straw poll. We said, how many of you believe in eternal conscious torment? And it was still 60%, which I thought was horrendous. But considered that's 10 years ago in an evangelical university, and they put their 40% wouldn't put up their hands. You're like, yeah. wow, that's a fast shift. And yeah. like you say, you know, with millennials, there it, it may be like, in the one percentile or something like that. So what's the psychology of it? I think you're going to have a range of stuff, but one of them, one of the strongest I run into right now is that there's an indoctrination that if you let go of the, of hell, you will go to hell. So it's purely about fear. That <laughs> It's also, that a cir actually, it's all cir circular fear, right? It is. And so I, I really do. I, I have friends who, even one yesterday, I'm praying for you because I think you're really in danger. Like of what? Well, of going to hell. Well, I I thought I thought faith in Jesus Christ was the criteria for salvation, not belief in eternal conscious torment. And if if it were, wow, what a incredible omission in all of Paul's preaching. Yeah. <laughs> every time he preaches the gospel, and he every forgets creed. to say that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um. Another, fear is one. Yeah, fear is a big one, obviously. Uh, here's another angle. I've been doing some uh, – a little bit casual um, research toward eventually my dissertation, uh, which is going to be around end times, theology, and, and mental health. And uh, I've done 20 or so interviews. And something that I've found – this is less about the end times stuff, but one thing that's come up a lot is that fear of hell acts as a motivator for keeping, frankly, membership high in the church – keeping people coming back to the church, there is a often unseen, and I, I'm not impugning the the uh, will or the, you know, hearts of these ministers, but it is like, it is a massive incentive for them to keep their livelihood. It is like the single biggest motivator uh, in certain strains of Christianity 
for getting people into the pews. Yeah, and and only slightly more charitable than that would be to say, and for control of morality, right? It's like so, and, and even evangelism, they're all kind of related in this sense. If if I preach hell, I can scare people into the kingdom. If I preach hell, I can scare them into morality. If I preach hell, I can scare them into attendance and whatever. But but morality is more charitable, right? Because I want them to have healthier marriages. I want that, you know, et cetera. Like there are things that you might and 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 by the way, it might still work. (laughs) They might be right about that, that in the short term, fear of hell does produce sort of ethical results or something like that. I, I would say like 150 years ago, it produced evangelistic results. I would say maybe 30 years ago, it continued to produce some moral results. Uh, I would say now half the church left the church, so it's not working anymore. In fact, because of the spiritual abuse involved in that kind of fear-mongering, what might have used to work probably is, is now creating more atheists than anything. I think that's right. And, I, and I, the re- there's a reason I said short-term. So I just learned yeah, in, in class very. recently about a study – so someone did a study where they uh, basically they, they gave people the chance to cheat, but they didn't tell them that that's what they were measuring. And then they had control groups for like this this uh, this house is believed to be haunted. And then they had another one. This house is believed to be haunted. And just earlier today, a couple people thought they saw one of the ghosts in the hallway. And you ratcheted up for the three groups, most cheating, less cheating, least cheating in order. Right. So uh, there seems to be a short term effect in human psychology, whereas if we think we're being watched by some non-living entity, we are more likely to toe the ethical line, at least in the moment. So perhaps what the church has done is take those short-term gains in exchange for the long-term losses. And this is – you could apply this equally to evangelicals and Trump, but we don't have to even say anything about that. Tremendous short-term gains in a certain sense, and the losses will almost definitely be catastrophic. Yeah, well said, man. Um, I asked uh, Father John Baer about this the other day. I would regard him as the top patristic scholar in the world right now, and he's really patristics at the front are just uh, church fathers, right? Early early, early church, church fathers, fathers and, and mothers as well. A few, yes. And so David Bentley Hart, for example, would have a very high high view of Origin, for example, who's sort of the father of a lot of this thought, and I would share that. And so him and he and guys like Father John Baer are rehabilitating the, these foundational teachers now uh, for us. And so I asked them this about like that, that there was a pastoral reasoning, right? Let, let's just say now you are a pastor with a good heart. Maybe a pastor with a good heart for pastoral reasons would have taught eternal conscious torment at one time. Well, now that same pastor with a good heart for pastoral reasons needs to do the exact opposite because yeah. they will perceive that people have been for far too long been beaten up with a, a vengeful God. And, 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 and then it becomes a pastoral responsibility to actually reverse your strategy. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, we need to do at least like two or three minutes on conditional immortality annihilationism here. A lot of people find that convincing. I know some of my patrons do. And generally... That's because people find a preponderance of biblical texts. This is what I I tend to find. That uh, maybe there are more biblical texts that talk about destruction, burnt up, you know, chaff burnt up in the fire, annihilation to be the dominant, I suppose, 
biblical image, and so they'll say, well, I'll go with that. And it's obviously morally a lot less concerning than eternal conscious torment. What is your take on annihilationism or conditional immortality? Yeah, so first of all, I would say that the passages they bring to the forefront are, are solid, but I actually don't see a preponderance of them. I, I could find maybe half a dozen that are really, really solid. And then about 30 universalist passages. So if we're just adding up verses, the universalists actually have the strongest case probably. But I don't want to marginalize those texts. I don't want to marginalize the judgment texts. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to take the teeth out of the dire warnings. So how we harmonize these texts differs. So the way you harmonize them if you're an infernalist is that you would, you would reduce all of the universalist texts to speaking only of the elect. And that's why I left Calvinism. I knew we were twisting those texts. There's no way Jesus Christ meant, I will draw all Christians to myself. He's like, I'm drawing all people to myself, right? Huh, yeah. And then, so Furthermore, they would reduce There were, of course, no elect. Christians yet at that time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then... I, I think with the the advantage of a of conditionalist uh, positions is that at least it's closer to eye for an eye justice, but they would still have to take the universalist texts and reduce them to the converts, and and I just don't see that being very convincing to me. Now, as a, universalists have have approached those other the judgment texts in 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 a couple of ways, one that I find very dissatisfying is pretending they're not there. Yeah. <laughs> so the way that Hart does it, and I that I've done it uh, also for, probably since I ran into it in Robin Perry's work, he's got a great book called The Evangelical Universalist under the author's name, Gregory MacDonald. He couldn't right. use his own name in those days. I would say this, Hart would say this, Perry would say this, that you harmonize the judgment text by making them penultimate. That is – there is a judgment. There may even be a consuming fire that completely destroys somebody in the age to come, but that's penultimate, which means second last. Yeah. And then you bring in the universalist text as your ultimate text. So the judgment texts are for the age to come. The universalist texts are for the end of the ages, 1 Corinthians 15. And so you, it's just an order in the drama of redemption. That's how Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not particularly, personally, I'm not particularly concerned with harmonizing uh, a Bible that I think is just very clearly multivocal, sort of up and down. But if you did want to, if you did want to sort of make sense of all those, that that's a logically consistent way to do it. Yeah. My, my personal need to do something like that comes from wanting to take Jesus seriously. Right. So when he says somebody is sent out into the outer darkness, they're locked out and now they experience weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do I throw that text out? Do I spiritualize it? What do I do with that? And Well, I just say it's penultimate. Of course that'll happen. Yeah. And then it'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Sure. Let's get into these patron questions because most okay. of them are scriptural, or at least a, okay. a big chunk of them. So we're going to get to these passages. The first question is um, a, a quoting. Whomever believes in me shall not die but have eternal life. Doesn't the word whomever imply contingency to this promise of eternal life? Doesn't it suggest the category of those that don't believe in him won't have eternal life? Yeah, if you take that on its own. And then, uh, so I would say we do have a good chunk of scriptures that include a contingency for the requirement of the willing faith response. 
And then we also have another set of texts that foresees all having that. And so the one glitch in the that, logic that there foresee would be people having it, that that say at the end everyone will have a willing response basically is what you're saying. Right. And so it would be like whoever whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And then Paul says and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. <laughs> and 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 so like oh so who who is whomever as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So, and yet, and that doesn't remove the contingency. It just tells you that it's going to be a universal uh, awakening to that. I would add this, though. That's from John. And in John, perishing and death and all of that is not about the future. It's about you are already perishing. You've already experiencing death, which isn't just literal dying. It is, it is the foreknowledge and fear of death as non-being. And, but if you will turn to Christ, he will remove the foreknowledge and fear of that non-being. Because, and, and so in this life, you cease perishing. In this life, you cease to fear because now you know that what we thought of as death is no longer a destiny of non-being. It's a doorway to eternal life. And, and you lose the fear now and experience the eternal life now. So in John, it's not about the future even. You're already in hell, and now you can already be in eternal life. So, Yeah, next passage, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So now here's another angle on this. Uh, so every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Now, this one does, the Matthew thing seems to be about this life. There are people yep. who cast out demons. Obviously, no one's casting out demons after they're dead. So... Uh, you know, there's stuff like that. But how, so how do you take this passage? Yeah, again, so this is really a, the great thing about the idea of all the judgment passages, especially in Matthew, are penultimate. They may be this life. They may be in the age to come. And then the eternal life passages are in the uh, are the ultimate. And so Matthew has a lot of warnings that, that the hypocrites and the wicked will pass through the fires of judgment. But then we find out that those are remedial fires of divine love rather than simply retributive punishment and torment forever and ever. So now suddenly I can very quickly go, oh, yes, give me all your judgment passages. And I know where they fit in the drama of redemption. They're on the way to something better where mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't negate judgment. And the judgment is dire. There could be those. How about like in this life? There will there will be those who may experience judgment as eternal not not ontologically or in reality but haven't you felt like wow this has gone on forever <laughs> so already I, I i know what it is to go like this 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 is age lasting that's not the same as eternal this is when am i going to be free of this it's like well when you're free of it but you will be you will be and so yeah so then these next two i think are the same the sheep and goats and then the uh, they who did not clothe or feed others, welcome the stranger, whatever, will go away to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. Uh, now, that one's a little harder in Matthew 25. That, that, yeah, that one we need to talk about, I think. So, first of all, it is in a series of parables, the ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and goats. And all of them are doing the same thing. The function of those parables is to set up the ethics of the kingdom as compassionate mercy and withhold it, running out of the oil of mercy – burying the talents of mercy that you're meant to pay forward. And then 
the sins of omission, all of the goat sins are, are nothing more than sins of omitting mercy. There's no actually like adultery or murder or anything. And then so in that parable, he divides the sheep and the goats. And it's, it's interesting. Like the criteria is it faith in Jesus. So that's a problem if you're going to be a literalist about it. Right. Um, but, okay, so the criteria is compassionate mercy and that when you do compassionate mercy, you are kind of receiving Jesus. But what happens if, you, if you're a goat? Well, in our translations, it's turned into this English gotcha phrase, eternal punishment. And as early as 200, Clementville Alexandria was already saying, it doesn't mean that. So Clement, who Greek was his first language, and he was the principal of the biggest seminary in the world uh, in Alexandria. And he's, he explains this, this passage. He says, first of all, the word for is Ionios, or like, from that word group, and it's not eternity. And he gives you examples in the Bible where it's talking about an age, the coming age. It's not about eternal, only God's eternal. But in the coming age, you will go through what? And he says, there is a Greek word for punishment, and it's timoria, and it's never used of God in the New Testament. And that's not the word used here. The word used here is colossus, which is colossus is about, is about correction. So those who have failed to show mercy in this life will pass through a, ju- a, a corrective or remedial judgment in the age to come. And he doesn't go on to tell us the ultimate end because that's not what he's up to in that passage. He is trying to show you how serious being yeah. unmerciful is. So It's really hard for us to keep in mind that like, you know, in 1990 or whatever, when they're making the NIV translation, for example – they're doing it in the context of an American Christianity that is thoroughly Protestant, that is very influenced by Reformed and Baptist theology. And this is why David Bentley Hart's New Testament translation is so helpful to have as another voice here, because we often underestimate the power of context, even when it comes to translating the text. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So so then to to wrap that up, you would just say, what Jesus is saying is that like, hey, there is something to come and it's not the same as this life and it is going to include punishment. But that's not the same as saying and it will be ongoing and burning forever. Well, and, and I wouldn't say punishment. I'd say there will be correction. Correction. Right, right. Yeah. So the, that's the difference between um, retributive justice and restorative justice, right? Exactly. Yeah. So my, my belief is that there is no retribution in the nature of God. So all his all all the judgments we experience, the torment of those judgments is the sin itself is what punishes you or your conscience is what punishes you. But the agendas of God in those judgments is always restorative. Um, I like this question. This listener asks, is the universalist argument essentially one of the trajectory of Scripture is it primarily logical and theological? Is it primarily based on early church writings? Some combo? How do you how do you answer that? Um, I would say that that we're our eyes are being unveiled to the many scriptures that overtly preach it. Like like I had quoted this one earlier. It's, it's a version is Romans five and in First Corinthians fifteen. As in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. Yes or no? You know. The, the veil is coming off our eyes to say, wait a minute, if we're going to be biblicists about that, when do we get to be biblicists about that verse and take it take seriously that what Christ has done for humanity 
far exceeds the sabotage of whatever Adam is did to humanity. And there's so many of these. So I would say, first of all, it's not just a trajectory after the scriptures. It's embedded there. Second, I think we're seeing it embedded there now because we're taking more seriously the theology of the early church rather than just Reformation theology. And we're starting to access those earlier theologians, and the best among them were universalists. I mean, yeah. And then I think that it, it, it does become logical and theological as well because you're – or specifically logical, that is, because you're comparing the logic of some of those early thinkers with like the logic of Calvin – and you're going, yeah. hey, guys, uh, one of these is a better philosophical argument, frankly. Yeah, a better argument of a better God. You know, so I, I like to say um, if, if we're going to compare theologians, let's use Ephesians 3 as our criteria. Which one reveals the higher, longer, deeper and higher love of God? Because whatever the gospel is, it will proclaim something that is higher, longer, deeper, and wider than I could get my head around, and I'll actually need the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit in me even to glimpse it. And when I do, I will say, oh, my goodness, this is more than I asked or imagined. So Kelvin or Gregory? Well, which one's better? Which one's more loving? Which one's a, a, a broader, a bigger vision of the love of God? Oh, well, Gregory. Well, then you must. You actually must take him. And the only thing that reason we wouldn't usually seems to me fear it's too good to be true, you know? So this one's interesting. It's kind of about, I think it's about that a lot of universalists will emphasize Christ as Victor atonement model over yep. other models of atonement. The question is when asked why Jesus had to die, if all are saved and there's no eternal punishment, some universalists say that Jesus died to conquer death once and for all, but what or which death? Obviously we all die as humans and if there's no permanent fiery death, then what death, at what point after our human death, is the death that Jesus is conquering? So as I understand it, it's like, well, if Jesus came to conquer sin and death, let's say, let's add sin in there. Well, we can yeah. understand maybe how he conquers sin, but how does he conquer death? Because we all die and there's not another death, which is annihilation or hell. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'd want to say that calling Christus Victor an atonement theory, as some do, one among many, um, is a fairly recent move, probably even by the guy Gustav Allen, who wrote a book on it. But in the early church, Christus Victor, the idea Christ conquered death, that's not an atonement theory. That's the gospel, <laughs> you know? Sure. It's, it's, it's not, uh, but they do have to explain it. And so Athanasius, in his book on the Incarnation, which is short and clear and worth reading, people should get it, because Reading these guys is better than reading about them. They're actually wordsmiths, and they know what they're doing. So he's, so he would be one example of someone who explains the logic, and, and it is this, that God saw his precious creation, humankind, descending into non-being. That's the words he uses. So probably what does death mean for him there is that is, is the corruption, like the corrosion of our humanity – all the way into non-being, which becomes the impossible possibility that he that he w will rescue us from Athanasius logic, and I think this is New Testament logic, Hebrews two, Hebrews four, that that God wants to rescue us from death, and He does so by entering death. But how can God enter death without dying? But God can't die, so He becomes human, so He can die and enter death. But 
when he enters death, it's not just his humanity. It's one person who's also God. So what do you do when Christ's humanity takes his divine nature into death? It blows up death from the inside. And now, so the entire idea of death has been renovated. Death is no longer this final destination of non-being. Uh, death is now a doorway into eternal life and, and through resurrection. And this, is, this comes out in the ancient art. In, in more modern art, like let's say Latin art, you've got Christ exiting an empty tomb on his own. In the great uh, resurrection icons of the Eastern Church, Christ is exiting Hades, and he's got Adam and Eve by the wrists, and he's pulling them up with him. This is symbolic, of course. He's raising up humanity with himself from the dust of death. So whatever death means, even to a materialist, it's just, okay, maybe it is non-being. And that the fear of that drives us to sin, according to Romans 5. Somehow, death and the fear of death held us in bondage to fear, and that this produces all kinds of dysfunction. But if God in Christ enters death and raises us up out of it, it means that the fear is broken, and we are now immortal. So to be mortal was not just to die physically, it was, to, it was the bondage to the fear of that. And now Athanasius says, how do we prove that Christ is alive, that he was raised from the dead? They don't go to the empty tomb. They say, look at us. We've lost our fear of death. That's our proof. And wow. um, yeah. And how awful it is that Christians have regained that fear. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm going to hazard a, a quick answer to this one and then get your thoughts. Uh, sure. This is a really interesting question. Do we have a robust enough account of punishment for truly evil actions? How do you help those who desperately need God to fight in their corner and hold those who have abused them accountable, especially if the perpetrators escaped justice in this world? I mean, this is a really serious issue. It's a pastoral issue. Uh, but I would worry if the only solace someone got is that their abuser was being tortured in hell forever. So I don't know if that's where you'd kind of want to go with it. That's where my mind goes. Yeah, uh, we actually saw this. We, we saw this in this life here. There was a fellow uh, probably now 30 years ago or 40 years ago who had abducted a, a young girl and he held her in a bunker under the ground and abused her for X amount of time. I think they eventually, uh, well, they caught him and they may have even rescued her, but her life was ruined. So I saw some parole hearings uh, for him much, much, much later. And it was clear to me, he, you know, there was no reason to think he would ever get out for doing this. But I could see a deep peace in him. And he was genuinely repentant. And I, I believe that he had met God in some way and it felt forgiven by God enough to not be in torment himself. Meanwhile, the family who was hoping to get solace through his punishment was in hell. You know, and they're saying, we hope you rot in hell. And he's like... The guy's not rotting in hell, but it kind of seems like you are, right? So that I would say, um, okay, then what do we say to those people? And this is where we could have a robust idea of judgment as a great and terrible day of the Lord, where you face the meaning of your entire life, all those who've harmed you and all those you've harmed in the presence of God, and that the harm is so thoroughly healed that by God, not by punishment, but it's love that heals us, that that love so thoroughly heals us that we may even become the instruments of forgiveness to those who harmed us. So imagine Hitler, uh, and there's a great book on, on this, um, Sharon Baker. I can't remember what the, her book is called, 
might be raising hell, but I remember an essay that was specifically called A Hospitable Hell. And it's the idea that the final judgment will be a truth and reconciliation commission. And she's imagining, right? She's imagining. It's a truth and reconciliation commission where you have to face everything. And Jesus actually says this. You're, gonna, you're actually going to have to face it all. And, but, but you'll face it in the presence of God. And you, we'll face it together where I can't flee from him or for those I, I've harmed. And, I, and then at that point, perhaps it will be a terrible day because she says, imagine Saddam Hussein, or let's, I would say Hitler. Imagine him having to face six million Jews. But then imagine Christ healing those six million Jews and becoming the midwives for Hitler's redemption by applying the forgiveness that they've received for whatever to him. Like, so I don't know, I'm just imagining, but I'm saying, then let's imagine. Certainly we have bigger imaginations than I'll feel better if they burn. Like that's, that's a really small, and, and, and it tells you that there's still a lot of wounding there and maybe there will be until we meet them. And so I don't mind lament, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's a difference between here's what a victim needs to go through in their human brain yeah. so that they can heal. That's yeah. one thing. And perhaps a pastoral role is to just shepherd them through that in the least intrusive way possible, you know, like just incarnating love for them and being yeah. just being with them. That's different than saying when we are doing theology and imagining the biggest love we can imagine, are we yeah. going to be hemmed in by the neurological requirements of abuse survivors or right. can we envision something that like – we would hope that they would be able to get to someday, whether or not they can, right? Yeah, yeah. I why well, and even in dealing, with, we've done a lot of inner healing work the last thirty years with with abuse survivors, and and we've never experienced the punishment of their abusers being instrumental in their healing. Mm -hmm. It was always about encounters for themselves with the love of Christ, and when they did, many of them quite naturally were able to move forward into forgiving their abusers and even to communicate that forgiveness to them directly. Wow. Um, I just met a guy, uh, well, I know a guy for a long time, but he told me about a month ago how he, he'd been so thoroughly healed by what Christ of, of sexual abuse that he was able to go find this guy and and extend love and forgiveness. He didn't have to force himself, and that's the problem in the church. We've often right. said, you don't get healed until you force yourself to forgive. Right, right, well, that's right. not fair. That's not possible. Either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's a good question. What do you think the strongest argument against universalism is, and how do you respond to it? I would say uh, the strongest argument against it would be if that universalism Let's go of any of the essentials of the gospel. And then I would argue against that kind by affirming the essentials of the gospel. And it's really hard. Like, so I have a very good friend and, I, and, and she says, but I, I just really think sin matters. I'm like, we believe that. I just believe the cross and the resurrection really matter. I'm like, I believe that. I just, I just really think we need to have faith in Jesus. I really believe that. I think there's going to be, I really believe that. So I affirm everything. And then she's like, yeah, but don't you think sin matters? <laughs> she, she can't. Right. That's the, that's the problem with the term because as she hears that term and creates a straw man from it, that's not even a strong argument against it, except when there are universalists who've done that. I, th I think a kind of universalism that makes Christ himself or the need for redemption optional or obsolete actually does need – that's a weak universalism. I don't know that there's a weakness to, to Hart's version. 
<laughs> right. I might be that kind of universalist. I, I tend to think of the atonement as revealing uh, what God is like rather than accomplishing something sort of metaphysically uh, in being. But, okay. We, yeah. We, and that's a philosophical argument yeah. where I would put it this way, and, and not that we'd agree on it necessarily, but I've come from Plato on this, and that is that forms form, and so eternals, to be eternal, must instantiate as particulars. In other words, God's eternal forgiveness is not only revealed in the cross, but it is instantiated in the cross in a way that it would not be eternal without the instantiation. So I'd, it's an anti-dualistic I'm doing an anti-dualist thing here where I'm saying yeah. that, that the eternals and the particulars, the nature of God and the acts of God are indivisible. Yeah, I think I could buy that. I mean, you, it would be something like for any world in which God has creatures, God will love them and God will express to them God's nature in a way that they can understand. And so what that meant for humanity was the cross. And yeah. resurrection. That, that's that's how I would say it. Something like that. So maybe we're not so far off then. I think I would track with you there. Yeah. And of, of course, if because you and I also have in the back of our minds this other thing and bracketed away about what about life on other planets, right? Yeah. And Which I think is like much bigger than non-zero possibility. Just just mathematically, there's billions of galaxies which each have billions of stars in them. I mean, it just seems likely. Do you remember the Larry Norman song? It was uh, uh I'm called unidentified flying object he said uh, if there's life on other planets then i'm sure that he must know and he's been there once already and he's died to save their souls um now it wouldn't necessarily be a dive dying to save their souls but it would be a revelation some kind and of revelation yeah sort of like uh the Par the paralandra series by yep c.s lewis right where different planets might require something different i don't think that's just a waste of time conversation i agree we're like are we really saying that the cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is how beings in the next galaxy came to know God? Well, no, probably not. So, so that's it. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I, I sort of had been operating under the assumption that we disagreed about this and that might be its own conversation because we are almost out of time here. I guess I have time for one more question for you, and I choose – I choose hmm, – <laughs> I choose this one. Because this one comes up a ton. How do we navigate the multiple variations of calls to make disciples slash compel others to follow Christ in light of Christian universalism? This is, I think this is one of the most common things that people will ask me if they find out that I'm universalist is, then why preach the gospel, basically? Oh, okay. John Wesley already helped us with this. So John Wesley, among other things, was an evangelist to Aboriginal people in North America. He encountered a lot of them who he regarded as being like Cornelius in the book of Acts, where prior to the gospel and prior to their conversion to Christianity, these First Nations people and also Cornelius already had valid faith practices and authentic spiritual experiences. Peter never negates any of those things. In fact, God himself affirms them to Peter. I've I've already accepted this man. I've already made him clean, even, he says. So he's acceptable, and he's been made clean, and I've heard his prayers. I've seen his almsgiving, and he's righteous. He even calls him righteous. So, all right, then why share the gospel? Well, Wesley had to ask himself that question when he met First Nations people who had an authentic relationship with the Creator. 
And as far as I know, there's only one creator. So they're relating to God as creator. So then he actually answers the question, then why tell them the gospel? And he said it this way, for the same reason as Peter, that Peter did, so that they would know the full assurance of their faith and experience the full inheritance given to them in Christ. And so as Peter's preaching the gospel, now the Holy Spirit falls on on Cornelius and there is an added revelation these First Nations people would experience. They'd, They'd hear about Christ and they'd say, okay, they already knew God. Yes, they did. Did they know their sins were forgiven, that their shame has been removed, and that they never need to fear death again? No, they didn't know that. Oh, okay, well then you can know your revelation of God expands by knowing them through the face of Jesus, just as like Abraham and Moses and David, they all knew God, but something new, there's something new, a revelation through Jesus that God is Abba who lives in you. It's so wonderful for me to be an evangelist now because I just have good news (laughs) and I don't have to have this threat or ultimatum behind the good news. I can even say, I bet you already know God. And did you know this? He became flesh to take care of the problem of death. So you don't have to be afraid of that. He took care of sin. You don't have to worry. You, you, you can be free of guilt and shame and, and so on. It's not just more knowledge, though. It's also the experience of that actually is deepened through the what Paul calls the spirit of sonship or daughterhood, that from inside me, my heart now cries Abba. And that, that we learn through the gospel. So that's what I do with it. Yeah. It also just begs the question that if, if preaching the gospel is to have people avoid hell— then is that faith? Like, if you become a Christian to avoid hell, that's just rational avoidance of pain and suffering. That doesn't seem to have much to do with faith. Agreed. Agreed. And, you know, that might be a a normal human response to the data they've been given. If they are convinced that they're going to hell and that this will this will keep them, then it's a very rational thing to do. It's not irrational, but it's not the gospel. I mean, it's just not what we're called to as Christians. Yeah, I mean, the best you could say is, well, I'm putting my faith in someone to save me from something. That's fair. He's a savior. Yeah. But where it gets really ugly is when he's saving me from his own father. <laughs> then, then now you're just into paganism. Right, right. right. Well, Brad, um, you've got to go. We obviously, I'll have a link to uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. Any other books of yours that relate to what we've talked about today? Sure. I've just released a book called In that discusses this thing about about Cornelius and the inclusion of all and why we would bring the uniqueness of Christ into the inclusion of all. So it's called In, it's on Amazon. And another new one that's just out is called A More Christ-Like Way. It talks about deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, four counterfeit ways uh, that have co-opted the church, especially in your nation, and well, in mine too. And then seven facets of the Jesus way that are laid out in the Gospels. So I, that's not as directly related to the discussion, but it's a brand new book. So I thought I'd bring it up. Well, and deconstruction and reconstruction are kind of what this show is all about. So that makes yep. sense. Thank you True. so much for your time, Brad. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing today's conversation. Josh is available for podcast editing and other audio editing. His email is in the show notes. Reach out to him if you have some work. And in the show notes also, I've got a link to that documentary, Hellbound. I've got a link to that Evangelical Universalist book that Brad mentioned earlier. Three of Brad's books, Her Gate Shall Never Be Shut, 
in and a more Christ-like life. And then I also found that uh, article, Athanasius on the Incarnation. There's a link to that. And finally, the Sharon Baker book, Raising Hell, which Brad also mentioned. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, Again, to become a patron and support the show financially and get me through grad school, patreon.com slash dancoke. Or you have permission pod.com, click become a patron and uh, do that also so that you can be in the Facebook group because the Facebook group is going off. It is awesome. It's such a cool community. Um, I'm, I'm actually learning quite a bit from people in there. I'd say that like I'm surprised. Of course I am. Of course I'm learning from you guys. Um, okay, I'm rambling. Email me if you have questions or anything, stories. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.